Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 29th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to talk about the 53-5 and Warriors, Steph Curry's record-setting game against the Thunder on Saturday, and the old people who say that Curry wouldn't score so many points if he was playing against a bunch of geezers back in the 50s. We'll also be joined by Bob Lee, the host of ESPN's Outside the Lines, to discuss the new FIFA president, Gianni Infantino and whether he'll be an agent of change within the sportocratic organization. And finally, we'll examine the latest obsession at the NFL Scouting Combine, the size of the quarterback's hands. There will be hand measuring. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is the Brie Larson to my Jacob Tremblay, Stefan Fatsis, author <laughs> of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. I thought you'd appreciate being Brie Larson in that I'm trying to figure out comparison. whether that's better or worse, whether I'd rather be Sorry. Brie Larson. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is the Academy Award winner, Brie Larson. Thank you. Now to my Jacob Tremblay. There we go. Stefan okay. Patsis. I was thinking more of the characters. Oh, I haven't seen that movie. Or read the book. <laughs> I haven't done either of those. <laughs> uh, with us in New York is the Ali G to my side boob showing Olivia Wilde. It's Mike Pasca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, I, Mike. I was hoping to be the Dalton Trumbo's daughter to Brian Cranston's <laughs> Dalton Trumbo. He said, knowing only the clip that he saw during the Academy Awards of that of that movie. Ha- happy birthday, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, I, I did see a one-man show called Trumbo that it, it might have been based on. I mean, it was obviously the same story. And they had this rotating cast. And I missed Michael Richards. I missed Kramer as Trumbo. But I saw... Uh, the guy from American Beauty who always plays like the hard ass uh, army guy, the neighbor. What's mm-hmm. that guy's name? Do you know who I'm talking about? Chris Cooper. Oh, yeah. Okay, Chris so Cooper. Chris Cooper was terrible, and everyone says Michael Richards was better. 
That is shocking. Just goes to show acting. And both of them were white. <laughs> In the Trumbo clip, they show, what's his name, Brian Cranston, yep. like yelling at the daughter. And the girl's like looking and just emoting and crying on command. And I was like, oh, just uh, give it to the guy who's yelling at her. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was like uh, that she should have been nominated. Come on. He helped her Come get on, in Stephen. that space. Yeah. You're an Academy Award winner. You have the, you have the power to make she, this happen. She wore the birthday hat very well for a 14-year-old. I did not think that this was where anyone's Oscar conversation was going to be going. It's kind of Oscar talk after. people ex- expect from us. Yeah, let's talk about Trumbo and Best Doc Short. <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to plagiarize my own tweets, but you know how Louis C.K. was saying that the Best Documentary Short winner never makes any money? I do yeah. remember yeah. that. Do you know who won the Best Documentary Short like five of the first uh, nine years? The U.S. Navy, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Marines, the U.S. War Department. They're doing well, the documentary short makers. Well, also, CK's uh, comments like got totally undercut. Like I sound excessively formal, formal there. CK. Louis CK. Yes. Mr. CK. <laughs> Louis CK's comments were totally undercut. by. He's like, they're going to have to take their... You know, Oscar back to their crappy apartment. The woman, the winner is like a woman who did a documentary about honor killings, <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> and won and won last year. Yeah, totally, totally uh, back to back. All right, one quick announcement, which is that we have a live show coming up. It's going to be in DC in April. Um, so just block off the whole month at this point. Um, the tickets will be available. I think hopefully this week we'll make an announcement and we'll have the date and the time and all that stuff for you guys next week. So we're looking forward to that. And on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, uh, we'll be talking- Are you going to be as detailed as you were with the live show on the bonus segment? (laughs) We'll be talking about something, possibly with our mouths. That is a great tease. I'm going (laughs) to tell you a little bit more. We're going to talk about freezing cold takes, the Twitter account that highlights dumb sports predictions. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others on our show and on the other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus, and you can get a free two-week trial if you sign up. Um, the URL is slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, let's talk about the man who really won the weekend. He's won every weekend, I think, uh, for the last couple of years. He's the greatest American. He's the greatest man on earth. It is Stephen Curry on Saturday night oh, man. in OKC. The Warriors beat the Thunder 121-118 to 118 in overtime. They are 53-5 and five on the season. It's the best record in NBA history at this point, 58 games. They have to go 20-4 and four at least the rest of the way to beat the Bulls' all-time record for wins in a single season. Steph Curry scored 46 in the game, 12 three-pointers, which tied the record for most in a single game. I'm pretty sure that in a game the rest of the year, he's going to get more than 12. That seems pretty much guaranteed. Only if he uh, wants to. <laughs> That's pretty much the only they, obstacle. If they play him in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Um, his last three of the game won it in overtime. It was from 38 feet away. Uh, you kind of have to see it to believe it, but let's listen to Mike Breen's call anyway. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! With six tenths of a second remaining! It was a really good shot. Uh, he has 288 threes made this year. It breaks the all-time NBA se- single-season record, which was set by Steph Curry last year. There's still 24 games to go in the season. So every kind of current NBA player was celebrating this game. This was the best 
performance in a regular season game, I think, in years. It got everybody just, like, super excited. LeBron James was saying he's never seen anything like it in the NBA. And then there's the kind of conversation that's been going on the last couple of weeks with players like Oscar Robertson saying that Stephen Curry wouldn't have been able to do this in the NBA of his day, that they used to play defense. And so, Mike, I think that you're always good for this. Yeah. The question here is, why should we even care that, like, one really old guy is saying this? Is this actually a, a thing or a trend? Because the acclaim that's going toward this team and towards Steph is like 99% of humanity. And there is a risk of just kind of um, accentuating or elevating the few outlier voices, you know, even if they are NBA Hall of Famers. Well, I guess sports media needs controversy as fuel and the Warriors aren't providing, or conflict is drama, and the Warriors aren't providing that much conflict and drama going and winning all their games. Sure, that overtime game was great, but you're not going to find the huge question, can the Warriors be beaten? Yeah, once out of every 12 times, that's not good enough. So let's take someone who might be the third best player in NBA history, and we don't hear from the big O that much unless we're, you know, University of Cincinnati Bearcat denizens, but big O says this, I guess you got to pay attention. He's a convenient straw man. He has fantastic standing, and it's an opportunity to laugh and to grouse and to say things like, oh, Pete Maravich scored a lot, didn't he? So he's helping us out to talk about Stephen Curry in a way other than, wow, isn't he great? No, he's really great. No, he's the greatest. Now, if it were up to me, I would have the controversy be a numerical one. How many feet away was he? Like, there's, you said 38. I've read mostly 32. Online, it's saying any, I've seen 35. I've seen 33. Have we no way to tell? I mean, between 32 and 38 is actually six feet. That's outside Andre Drummond's range. Don't we have a way to tell how <laughs> I many I initially feet? said 31, but then corrected yeah, it to 38. Yeah. Well, can't yeah. we have it's a It's one radius? Oscar Robertson of difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that's where I think the controversy should, controversy should be. Well, Deadspin did this compilation of every shot that Steph has made this year that's 28 feet or longer, and a lot of them were less than 28 feet. I totally concur with your point that it should there should be better uh, measurements. I tweeted out the 38 when I saw it because I stayed up for some reason after the game watching ESPN's coverage of the game, um, and they did the you know they because it the, was so exciting. It was so exciting. You just I, wanted to hear more. I did, um, and you know me, I'm like anhedonic. I don't get too excited. I got excited about this. <laughs> um, the and they did the the graphic thing with the line and the vector and oh, the triangle, which made it yeah, look they like the, they actually had like a, a and protractor. the sound effects. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, had the exactly. protractor and they actually measured the distance, calculating. Yeah, you know, the the hypotenuse of a right triangle. Mm-hmm. Well, that well, seems the legit. three point line's twenty two, and the half court line is forty seven feet away. No, it's twenty three feet and nine inches, nine except inches. on the corner, it's twenty two. Right. right. Okay. So let's say twenty four and forty seven. So it looked like halfway in between, right? So let's say that's uh, thirty eight, because isn't that halfway between forty seven and and it should be a little not, longer actually. because <laughs> it's the hypotenuse because it's hypotenusal. It's not straight out. So. Thirty five and a half would be halfway. Um, the hypotenuse part. Okay, so if we bracket the big O for a second, as apparently old time defense, a word, by the way. It is now. That's how words get in the dictionary, Mike. People use them. Well, do you know so, someone who writes words in the dictionary? Okay. Anyway, uh, anyway, I'll see anyway. If I can find someone. I think we're trying to not 
take up. Uh, we're doing whatever we can not to take up Oscar Robinson's Robertson's argument at face value. But please uh, proceed. So I do think that it is worth discussing the bitterness of old players and how common it is as a trope. So Robertson wasn't the only guy. There was also Cedric Sabalos for some reason was saying that the 93-94 Suns, just like a ra- very random guy from a random team. It's like, you know, I'm trying to th- think of what would be equivalent. Hersey Hawkins said that the 96 Sonics could. Um, so he was saying the 93-94 Suns could beat them. Steven Jackson was saying the 2007 Warriors who won a first round series as an eight seed could have beaten this iteration of Warriors. So there is just like something about being an older athlete that just leads to back in the deism. So I wonder if you have any kind of thoughts or theories about that. Yeah, Stephen. I, I think it's a natural human response. You want to believe that when you did something, you were doing it better than the people that did it after you. I mean, it applies to anything. Hey, when I was editing our college paper, it was the best three years of, of the college paper when I was writing for it. Well, when I mean, you wrote is, for the Wall Street Journal, like there was legitimate reporting uh, as opposed to what the kids are doing today on the internet. Right, those kids. Yeah, it's very different. Those were the those were the glory days of the Wall Street Journal when I was there. Um but it's also I think it's just hard for all of us for anyone to to recognize all-time greatness when it's happening. I think it's, you know, I think we tend to decontextualize what's going on in the moment. We say this isn't possible to be happening right now. So the, the natural reaction is then to glamorize what happened in the past, DiMaggio or Will Chamberlain or Jim Brown. No one could possibly approach the greatness of, of these athletes. Um, when in fact, it's scientifically sort of demonstrable that today's athletes are way better. The average athletes are way better in terms of pure ability. I mean, the amount of training, the amount of repetition, the amount of coaching, it, everyone's better today than the best players of previous generations. And, you know, that's why these comparisons in some ways are totally idiotic and arbitrary. Every, every contrast should be with one's peers. But if you're one of those guys that played in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whenever the aughts, um, I mean the 19 aughts, <laughs> you want to believe that that was the best time because you have no real way of comparing. Everything is refracted through your memory. Well, the Robertson thing, I mean, the most absurd part about it is just his claim that when I played years ago, if you shot a shot outside and hit it, the next time I'm going to be up on top of you. Yeah, no, one's like, th- no one thinks of that anymore. Yeah, I mean, or <laughs> nobody thought of coaches today. They don't. They don't run any plays this day. I mean, if you watched the game against the Thunder, so the question this year for every NBA team has been, how do you defend the Steph Curry, Draymond Green pick and roll? That's the question in basketball mm-hmm. that no team has been able to figure out because if you switch the pick and roll, then you've got a big guy on Steph Curry um, and a little guy on Draymond. Um, If you double team, then you've got Draymond playing four on three. There are like no good answers. The Thunder tried to switch and put like Steven Adams, who's like the seven foot guy from New Zealand with a mustache. They tried to do like everything that they possibly could to avoid letting Steph Curry get open threes. And if you watch the highlights, Oscar Robertson, Steph Curry is making three-pointers with a seven-foot guy directly in his face, one foot from him. 
And An so, ugly New Zealander to boot. <laughs> I mean, right in the dude's mustache. In 1966, <laughs> he would have been six inches from him. Right. New Zealand would have not been a country. Um, but you notice that these guys aren't uh, broadcasters. They aren't people who actually watch all the games. So who knows? You know, the most ridiculous thing about Cedric Sabalos might be that in 1997, <laughs> he starred in an episode of Living Single called High Anxiety or Actually, the most ridiculous thing about Cedric Sabalos was that he toured with the USA Legends in 2011, donned a Malaysian player's jersey, and dunked on the Malaysian team wearing a Malaysian player's jersey. Anyway, wow. all of those things are as sensible and go as far as to explain what Cedric Sabalos is talking about as, yeah, Tom Chambers would have switched on Draymond Green. That's <laughs> the thing about, he's not, so I would have stopped Curry is stupid, but I guess you could put three guys on him. But the point of the Warriors is that what they're doing with Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green and all these other really good complimentary players we don't talk about, nothing that Robertson or Sabalos has said indicates that he under- that they understand what the whole team is doing. That's the amazing thing. Let's forget about said Sabalos and Oscar Robertson and maybe focus on a player who might have a little bit better and more reasonable and rational perspective on Steph Curry. That would be Steve Nash. Um, I recommend everyone go read uh, a column that Bruce Arthur in uh, Toronto wrote in December in which he interviewed Nash and Nash talked at length about it's about Curry and Nash talked about Curry. The, the quotations are fantastic, and we, as we know from uh, our friend John Hawk's series about Steve Nash, Nash is a thoughtful guy. Summed up, I think he's the most skilled player we've ever had as far as all-around skill. And Nash goes into real detail about what Curry does that distinguishes him. The ability to shoot off balance, the ability to create shots, the ability to, to score in traffic. Um, the kinds of things that Nash says he didn't imagine were possible when he was growing up and the kinds of things that people praised him for being able to do, for being sort of a pioneer in, in doing. And Nash says that Curry takes it far further than, than he was able to. Well, the thing about Steve Nash was that he was an extremely accurate shooter, maybe one of the best of all time. Well, he's one of but the 50, 40, 90 guys. Mm-hmm. He didn't shoot very often. That was right. kind of the secret. And I think he's said... Um, in retirement or maybe even later in his career that he regrets not shooting more than he did because it would have taken pressure off of his teammates and he would have, you know, scored more and um, been a more valuable player. The thing with Curry is he shoots more than anybody else who's a great shooter in NBA history. And he shoots off balance more and he shoots off of different feet more. Nash said the speed range, dexterity, going left, going right, leaning, fading, it feels like the possibilities are limitless. Right. So to break it down, I think that, you know, for years, the last 20 years in the NBA, it was seen that you had to have height and it was probably true and you also had to have bulk. And so what Steph Curry does is because he doesn't succeed despite that, I think he succeeds because of that. He squares up no matter what position he gets himself in. He's always square to the basket. He rarely makes, he rarely attempts the off-balance three. And when we say the off-balance three, is off-balance in the beginning of a shot. But at the end, I don't think there's any way to accurately shoot unless you're square to the basket. And he could get square to the basket from almost any starting position. I don't think, uh, I just think the way the human body unfolds, it takes more for the 6'6 guy to do it. And it takes a lot more for the muscular guy to do it. So he is, you know, lithe, lithe and Gumby-like. And that 
it's just the most amazing thing to watch. And as much as we say what a joy it is, I can't remember a team when on pretty low stakes, regular season games, I mean, you know, they're a number one seed and usually we say, let's get to the playoffs already. But in baseball, even when Bonds was great, he only comes up one every nine times and you can walk him. In hockey, Gretzky only took shifts, you know, a third of the time. In football, when the Patriots are have this great offense that you got to watch, it's only their offense. So like, this is the greatest regular season spectacle I've ever seen mm-hmm. in sports. And it's mostly because of Curry and everything else around him. It's amazing. Shut up, Cedric Sabalos. <laughs> <laughs> well, go back to Lake Havasu. I think we've even understated in this segment how impressive it is because I think there's just this assumption that he's a great shooter and that he'll continue being a great shooter. But if you look at Kyle Korver, for example, that's a guy who there have been articles written about what a craftsman he is, what a technician he is, and how he has the most perfect shot of anyone in the NBA and how he can get square better than anyone. He shot 49% from three last year. It was one of the greatest shooting seasons of all time. This year he's shooting 38%, Mm -hmm. which is good, but it's not, you know, what Steph Curry is shooting. It's not what Kyle Korver has generally shot. And so just to be able to do it, even if you have the ability to do it every year and do it consistently is not something where you you can just assume like he's a great shooter. So it'll just happen. The fact that he keeps on doing it is unbelievable. Well, and I, the the thing about the the Saturday night game too, is that I, I, after the game, I tried to put together a little list of moments that I could watch over and over and over again. And I think I would be pleased. It would bring a <laughs> smile to my face to watch them. And that's a pretty short list. That's pleasurable. Here's my, here's my short list. Bucky Dent in 1978. Aaron Boone hitting the home run against the Red Sox. So two Yankee home runs against the Red Sox. Okay. Micah Ruzioni scoring against the Russians in 1980. Landon Donovan scoring against Algeria at the World Cup in 2010. Franco Harris, Immaculate Reception, pretty watchable, pretty cool, even though the video is not great. Christian Leitner against Kentucky. No one likes Duke. I don't like Duke. But still, it's sort of a jaw-dropping, holy shit moment. You can't believe that happened. Every one of those, though, was in a game of tremendous import. This was a regular season game. He's doing insane shit every night that makes us want to go back and watch the video. And I think that is a testament to how remarkable this run of of athleticism and ability and performances. And I'll also tell you from where he was or what we thought he could be, I mean, he was basically Jimmer Fredette in college. In fact, I have Jimmer Fredette's uh, scouting report, and it says at one point, uh, a sh- measures a shade above six foot at six foot three quarters with a respectable six foot four and a half wingspan. But he compares pretty well to <laughs> Stephen Curry, six two without shoes, six three and a half wingspan. That's the comp, and he compared well to Stephen Curry. All right, coming up, we'll be talking about the FIFA presidential election, but first a word about Panoply's new science fiction show, Imaginary Worlds. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, the host of the newest podcast on Panoply, Imaginary Worlds. Every other week, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, how they're created, and why we suspend our disbelief. You could start at the beginning with what makes a good origin story, whether you're applying for a job or starting out as a new superhero. You could also check out my five-part series on Star Wars, where I looked at how the evil empire became a metaphor in sports and politics, and whether Princess Leia's gold bikini is a feminist icon. Imaginary Worlds gives you the backstory behind pop culture stories, 
and how they've changed the way we understand the real world. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, joining us now for our next segment is Bob Lee, the host of ESPN's Outside the Lines. He was hosting a series last week, FIFA in Crisis, a presidential election. Can we get some theme music for that, Pesca? <laughs> FIFA's in crisis, but don't worry, Tokyo says, well, is here to solve it. <laughs> Bob Lee, what a, what a great introduction. You probably never had a better one. Oh, kick high. Big finish, kids. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this is just not the kind of production value you can get at a rinky-dink operation like ESPN. No, no. Um, we, we, we didn't commission, but I tell you, next time around, we know who to call. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a surprise um, that Gianni Infantino ended up uh, becoming the president of FIFA. Nobody would have predicted that. A few months ago, um, he's a 45-year-old Swiss guy with an Italian name. What else can you tell us about him, and what does it mean that Infantino um, got the job as opposed to the other candidates? Well, about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, the working hypothesis was that Infantino and Sheikh Salman of Bahrain, who at the time was perceived as the overwhelming favorite, would more or less run as a as a tandem. While they might actually, you know, see this through to an election, Infantino would be the Secretary General under uh, Salman, and Salman would institute his reforms, separating the football from the from the economic side, from the business side, and whatnot. But over the the, the last two and a half, three weeks, you you got the definite sense that the wind was at Infantino's back, that Salman. Uh, was getting had to get to Zurich early to do some unexpected lobbying, which was explained away as uh, uh, no big deal by his people. And Infantino had been given a half million euro budget, about six hundred thousand dollars, to campaign. And you know, in less than uh, ten days from the election, he's down on Robben Island with Tokyo Sequale, uh, You know, uh, where Sequale had been a prisoner with Madiba, Nelson Mandela. I mean, he, he visited, I believe, by one count, a hundred federations and was closing the gap. I mean, Infantino stood up and, and, and campaigned on, he not as much of an insider as Jerome Champagne uh, uh, campaign, which in his theme was basically, I'm going to make FIFA great again. Uh, <laughs> that, that ain't going to happen. But Infantino made the point that in, in running UEFA with Michel Platini, he had tripled revenues even through trying economic times, and that FIFA sitting at a billion point five of revenues. And so the human rights question certainly dogged uh, Salman, uh, the fact that the morning of the election, and probably an unrelated uh, incident having to do with political tension with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain had put a uh, military presence on the streets of its capital city unseen since the Arab Spring. That simply reawakened the question, which had been dogging Salman. How complicit was he in at least doing nothing to help out the athletes who were tortured in the wake of Arab Spring 2011? All of that said... Uh, Infantino uh, is closer to the status quo, perhaps, than some people might like, but uh, is is somebody I know that the U.S. Soccer Federation says they have a great comfort with. And now the question becomes, who who will they hire and who will be selected as the Secretary General? And, and what will these reforms mean, if anything? Because remember, this special Congress was was presided over by an acting president, Issa Hayatu of Cameroon, who stands accused, and you heard an eyewitness tell his story on Outside the Lines last week, the acting president of FIFA stands accused of taking a million point five dollar bribe for his vote on Qatar for the 2022 World Cup. So 
there's not going to be any um, any biblical lightning in the sky and thunder that'll say reform has been achieved. I think it'll be the absence of bad news over an accretion of time that'll tell you, well, maybe things are changing. And, and as you mentioned, they passed a bunch of reforms. Uh, some of them involved uh, appointing more women to the executive committee. Others were about transparency. And clearly the tone was dictated from FIFA's lawyers. Uh, the U.S. federal government, the Swiss authorities continue to investigate FIFA. It wouldn't be surprising if more indictments came down. There are still prosecutions and extraditions to come. But as you, as you noted, or, or at least alluded to, Bob, the cast of characters here hasn't really been changed, at least among the people that haven't yet been indicted in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in all of these places that are rife with corruption. CONCACAF. Co- Don't forget CONCACAF. CONCACAF. Did yeah. I leave out CONCACAF? Sorry, CONCACAF, <laughs> the Caribbean and Central America and North America. Uh, these are places rife with corruption, cronyism. So is there really any reason to be optimistic or is this window dressing... And what we really needed here wasn't a complete and total clearing of the of the decks and a, and a fresh start. Well, if you get a, a complete and total clearing of the deck, you're just going to blow up FIFA, abolish FIFA, and, right. and create a new world governing body. That was not about to happen. Not with a billion five in the bank, and not with five billion revenue projections over a four year period. Let me let me ask you guys to take a guess here. How many members of FIFA's Exco, the executive committee, since 2010 have either been indicted, fined, suspended, disciplined, or credibly suspected of, of malfeasance? If you tell me how many are on the committee, I bet I could have a pretty good 24 guess. 24 <laughs> were on the committee. Well, it, it, there's been turnover. I mean, because right. terms come and terms go, but my, uh, it's uh, 24 people on the committee. Mm-hmm. I think it's Got slightly it. worse than the governor of Illinois record, which is, I think, four <laughs> in a row in jail. No, it's probably the majority, right? It's 23. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then that doesn't mean that all but one of this current exco are honest people. No, no, no. But over the, the accretion over time, 23 people have either been disciplined, indicted, accused, forced to, to step down, or credibly accused of... of, of yeah, not of, out of 24. It's out of more than 24, but Yeah, still. but the point is, if you go back and look at the, the, the exco that voted the Russia and Qatar World Cups, I mean, the, the, that exco was decimated by these, mm-hmm. by these legal actions. And a lot of people blame it on the United States. If Sepp Blatter continues to say, well, you know, if the vote had been not for Qatar but for the U.S., and he swears the fix was actually in, in yeah. for the U.S., that the, the two superpowers would share the next two World Cups, that had the U.S. got the 2022 World Cup, this wouldn't have happened. But, in <laughs> fact, if you, if you saw last week Sean Assale and Brett Forrest on Outside the Lines and, 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 and talking about taking you inside the takedown of Chuck Blazer, uh, the organized crime division of uh, squad in the FBI in the Eastern District of New York out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, had opened a case already looking at all of some of this stuff uh, well before the December 2010 vote. Now, the vote and every all the questions that arise from it certainly gave impetus to keep digging. But part of the undoing of, of, of FIFA were these CONCACAF broadcast contracts that had the provision that there's any dispute here about the awarding of rights or the back and forth. And these were the, uh, these were the legal contracts based on illegal payoffs. If any disputes here, we'll go to federal court in the United States. Oh, okay. And all this money is flowing through U.S. banks and whatnot. And as soon as that money crossed into the United States, boom, it was a federal crime. 
Wow, I didn't realize the Russian World Cup and Qatar World Cup were a thanks Obama moment, but I guess they were. Thank you, Sepp Blatter, for that theory. Here's my question. So within the restrained and protracted world of, or I should say, and proscribed world of FIFA, is is Gianni seen as how much of a, refor- of a reformer was Salman seen as, hey, he's one of the club, perhaps within the club, he's a little more on the reformer side. I mean, we're not getting you. Gene Debs. I don't think we're getting Bernie Sanders. Are we getting, I don't know, uh, someone slightly who will take uh, the stick to what FIFA has been doing so far? I, I think I think those analogies. I mean, they're they're fun to make, and we we made them. I mean, the inevitability of Hillary Clinton, the inevitability of Sheikh Salman. That's what joke around the office about a week ago, and and the insurgency of Sanders, the insurgency of Infantino. But it do, it doesn't really apply philosophically. I think. Look, Infantino is a serious man. Uh, he also understands what he's inherited. And Blatter told him in a statement uh, that I think he put up on his blog after the election on Friday. You know, you will not have a lot of friends once you step into the president's chair. And that's true. I mean, there'll be people coming at you with with agendas, but you know, welcome to life. I mean, Infantino is is an attorney. I mean, he he's he's flat out honest. He says he still talks to Platini. Platini, of course, has been suspended for now six years by uh, FIFA for the uh, the two million dollar payment he got, uh, which didn't involve a written contract. But Infantino, I think these are smart people. They understand what's at stake, that if they, if they F this up, I think that's a legal term, um, the DOJ here will declare them a, you know, a corrupt organization which puts them into a new realm of prosecution. They have to show, and they've been frantic to show, FIFA has been through their, you know, the FIFA is comprised of a lot of good, honest employees. Um, a lot of the corruption was at the very highest of levels and with people affiliated with FIFA through their ex-co positions. But my point is the FIFA legal authorities here, their lawyers and the, and, and the law firm they hired, the U.S. law firm, at great pains to show the Department of Justice that they've tried to clean out the stables here, because absent that, uh, they would be declared a corrupt organization in all sorts of RICO statutes and, you know, Katie bar the door. So I have a question for you, Bob, about what you feel like your role is. You guys have been doing great journalism at Outside the Lines for years on FIFA specifically. You've also served as the host of ESPN's coverage of the World Cup, and ESPN broadcast six straight World Cups from 1994 through 2014. Then FIFA awarded the World Cup broadcast rights in the U.S. to Fox, and ESPN wasn't even allowed to bid. And so, Did that really happen? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, it did, actually. That so, was a so my question is, do you feel more liberated now no, to do no, this reporting? No, I, I know where you're going, but I mean, it's listen, we were just as jaundiced, just as fairly critical, um, having worked around, listen, I've been around soccer my entire adult life, and, and so, you know, I, well before the awarding of World Cup rights had a direct bearing on, on exactly what I was doing. I mean, I, even we, I did the 82 World Cup uh, here for ESPN, um, and then it was on Turner uh, for the next two year, uh, cycles, but I honestly, listen, we have been as tough on these issues as anybody through the years. Now, I will say that once the prosecution said it, it it all accelerated to a different level, um, but I, I, I think that uh, if you go back and look at things that we did in South Africa and Brazil and the allusions to what FIFA were trying to do in certain areas, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough but fair. 
Do you think that it's a little weird, though, that ESPN is helping the or was helping to finance this organization that has so clearly, um, you know, abused its position and has used those funds for ill? That a lot of those funds are coming from. Well, now, now, hold on, hold on a second. The money, the money that's the the bribery. Uh, the TV money went to operate FIFA, okay, um, from, from broadcasters all over the world. I mean, we're talking about a lot of the corruption that existed were payments made uh, by organizing committees for hopeful World Cup nations. So I, that's not necessarily television money. I mean, the money was laundered through FIFA, the $10 million involved in the South Africa bid that involves Jack Warner. But, the, you know, that, that bribe money, for example, that went to, allegedly went to Issa Hayatu and two other African members of the Exco in Luanda, Angola, well, that, that was from the Qataris. That was not FIFA money. That was not broadcast money. But, yeah, that, that we have to do business with an organization that uh, at times it felt like you're dealing with the Gambinos. And, and you know, Mr. Gotti would like you to get out of the car for the next meeting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but uh, every broadcast entity on earth, the BBC included, was in the same position of having to negotiate with them on and come to, come to a deal. Right. Well, I think what you're trying to say, Bob, is to quote Sepp Blatter in an interview with the New York Times, every day is a fiesta. I am a happy man, sometimes sad, yes, but I'm a happy man. Yeah, I, we try to be happy. If you're not happy, why get out of bed? <laughs> a billion yeah, dollars you... in bribes. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one last question about the, about the future of FIFA and the role of the United States. If you watched the uh, voting uh, last week. There were two rounds. After the first round, Infantino had a small lead over the shake. And then we saw U.S. Soccer Federation President Sunil Gulati working the room masterfully, apparently. And it felt to me like Gulati had a plan here. He backed a different candidate, Prince Ali Albin Hussein of Jordan, who was viewed as the real reformer, and the U.S. had backed him last year when Sepp Blatter was reelected. But it felt to me like Gulati is finding a way, as Sunil Gulati does, to sort of expertly, over time, harness his influence in world soccer. And I think we saw a manifestation of that. What influence do you think that and Gulati's position inside FIFA now in a sort of post-Blatter FIFA will have on the United States in terms of its ability to broker and be a, a more uh, influential voice inside world soccer? Well, Galati's still in his first term, I, I do believe, on uh, on the Exco. I think he has one more year in this first term, which means he has another two terms if he chooses to stand and, and can be. And he's only elected by one vote last time. And you're right, he was uh, he was disclaiming and kind of poor-mouthing his influence, but no, he was there. Um, and I asked this question and couldn't, you know, they, they declined to answer going in what the second ballot strategy was. And clearly, and, and as he later spoke about, the second ballot strategy was to move from Ali to Infantino and to get as many Ali voters to do the same. And obviously, um, conversations with Captain Horace Burrell, the Jamaican president, uh, who's influential in the Caribbean, and, and other inf- conversations that Gelati had, uh, Gelati had around the hall, obviously had impact. All of FIFA's profits are reported in American U.S. dollars, right? They're not reported in Deutschmarks, which don't exist, or euros, or or, or Russian rubles. So, uh, folks love to uh, account for them, their wealth in American U.S. dollars, but uh, antipathy towards the U.S. is an easy thing to find around the world. The fact is, 
I think Gulati's position is, is, is very much embellished. He has an understanding and a relationship with the Infantino. And, of course, the, you know, implicit in your question, and it comes down to four numbers, and the four numbers are 2026-2026. What's going to happen with that World Cup? They're not going to revote 2020. I, I don't think, unless, unless, you know, they find something incredibly egregious incredibly quickly because the, the stadia are under construction. You know, Russia, the train left the station, and you want to be the one to tell Putin they're taking a World Cup away from him? No, I don't think that's about to happen. And I don't think the geopolitically you're about to see the world's first uh, Arab World World Cup uh, taken away uh, from Qatar. It's certainly not taken away from Qatar and, and voted to the United States. So the question becomes, what about 2026? And the talk is always about rotating these World Cups from continent to continent. And Qatar is in the very west of Asia, in the Middle East, as it were, uh, but Western Asia and Eastern Asia, China sits there. You know, would there be two Asian World Cups back to back? Well, the Chinese are going to make the case that we've got the facilities, we've got the economy, we've got the infrastructure. Um, and we deserve it. And it's going to be tough to make a cogent case against them, except on the, the whole thing of continental, uh, uh, you know, uh, moving it about. Uh, Mexico certainly feels they, they want to be in the running for 2026. So all of this has certainly embellished the American effort to win a vote for 2026. And if they keep to the timetable, that vote probably won't even take place uh, for another two years at least, I would think. So. You know, we've got a lot of politicking to come. Just when you thought you'd seen the last of the brass knuckles and uh, the, the arm twisting and whatnot, you know, this will be the FIFA Council now, which is a larger group voting on these. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if they, if among the changes they make, it would be open voting, roll call voting for World Cup votes. Boy, a lot of people would find Jesus in a hurry with that. I think a lot of people would be interested to hear, you know, Cook Islands, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. Wait a minute. They all have a vote? Yes, they do. They do. Uh, you know, Montserrat, which, uh, you know, was actually uninhabited after a volcano in recent years, which now has 5,000 inhabitants, in, in CONCACAF, uh, on paper, is the same as the United States. And, and under this, this strange money distribution system, the, you know, the U.S. and Montserrat get the same million-dollar check, as it were, to whatever the size of the check is they get from FIFA. The United States don't need any help from FIFA. Uh, obviously, we're in a well-funded position from the legacy of the 94 World Cup. But, yeah. It is like the, it is larger than and just as functional or dysfunctional, depending upon your point of view, as the United Nations General Assembly. Bob Lee, uh, thank you so much for joining us, and we're going to play your exit music now. Oh, please. I can't wait well, to hear what it'll Actually, be. I'd like to go out on the national anthem of full FIFA voting member Vanatua. Yummy, yummy, yummy. <laughs> I got love in my tummy. <laughs> Is that really the Vanuatu National Anthem? Yummy, yummy, yummy. It means wee, wee, wee in uh, Bisiyama, the language of Vanuatua. Uh, I'm telling you, thank God for Google. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad we've taught you one thing on this show, Bob. Uh, Bob Lee is the host of ESPN's Outside the Lines. Thank you so much for being with us. Carry on, man. Thank you. Okay, time for our last segment of the day. It's a subject that's even more consequential than the FIFA presidential election. It's bigger more scandalous than Oscar Robertson dissing Steph Curry. It is the small hands NFL combine controversy of 2016. Small hands are the 
story just across the nation. Mm-hmm. You have Marco Rubio denouncing Donald Trump for having small hands. Is that correct, Mike? Denounce, angrily denouncing. Yep. Donald Trump famously tabbed as a short-fingered vulgarian by Spy Magazine in the 80s. Is it true? Apparently it is. The Combine don't lie. Neither does Marco Rubio. So who are some other Americans with small hands? You got Donald Trump. I'm going to say James Buchanan probably had (laughs) tiny, tiny hands. What about Arkansas quarterback Brandon Allen? He's up there with Buchanan, the father of the Arkansas Constitution. Jared Goff of Cal, um, discussed all season as maybe the top pick in the draft, the top quarterback off the proverbial board, is now in danger of dropping due to his, as SB Nation put it, horrible, puny, Lilliputian nine-inch hands. And if he does drop, he won't be able to grab onto a high branch because of small his, hands. his absurdly small hands. So... What do NFL execs and coaches feel? Do they think that this whole small hands issue is overblown? That it's maybe large? Oh, they've been must, enlarged right? like this a gigantic so silly. hand? Silly. Mm-hmm. Chip Kelly says hand size is huge. You better have big hands. Except in the case of Jared Goff, apparently. <laughs> John Elway, hand size is important. Well, of course, the guy's a horse. Come on. <laughs> Brown's head coach, Hugh Jackson. Does quarterback hand size really matter, Hugh Jackson? Oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Well, we like, does. we like our quarterbacks to keep their hands off their girlfriends and the liquor, said Brown's coach, Hugh Jackson. All right. So we're going to do some live podcast hand measuring. In New York, you're going old school with uh, a ruler. <laughs> a, a wooden ruler. A, a wooden ruler. So, Mike... The way that as a, a potential NFL quarterback, you're supposed to measure your hand is extend the thumb and the pinky finger as wide as you can and then measure from the furthest width that you can from thumb to pinky finger. Right. Let us know what you get. This Now, to me, before I tell you the results, I will say this seems to unfairly benefit quarterbacks with extra stretchy hands, which I think could oh, probably we're gonna get be into that, Oh, uh, we're going to get into that, we have All to right. discuss that. This ruler, I would say right I am one... Cracking my knuckles. One little guy short, one little guy short of 10 inches. So wow. nine... That's almost let's Elway. Say, let's say nine and seven-eighths. I just wanted to beat Dante Culpepper, who is 9.5. I also don't like when they express it as point, because it's 9.5 inches, nine... In, and a, what is 0.5 of an inch? It's half an inch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right. But there's usually an eighth. Oh, man. But there's usually an, how would you say seven eighths? Would you say 9.875? All right. While while Mike's figuring that out, uh, Stefan, what's your hand measurement? Stretching. Stefan's stretching his hand. Stretching my hands. So, Stefan, which which online ruler website are you using? Uh, I'm using (laughs) freeonlineruler.com. So, I urge everyone to open up freeonlineruler.com. You might have to calibrate. The ruler, get out a credit card, and it'll you walk you through the steps. Different monitors. Different. Two steps, different monitor. You know, an inch is an inch. Free online ruler is one of the top results in Google for free online ruler. So. <laughs> and free online ruler, if you're listening, please put in a bid to sponsor, hang up and listen. Freeonlineruler.com for all of your online ruler needs. It's right. better than freeruler.com because this right. one's online. All no, right. actually, freeruler.com is about uh, imprisoned Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak. Just so you know. That was a great joke. I'm happy with myself. I'm glad I came up, came in today. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, my hands are definitely bigger than the starting quarterback 
for the U11 national champion. <laughs> yeah. I'm weighing in here at a, at a robust eight and a half inches. You have Scrabble hands. I've okay. got Scrabble hands. So eight not, and a half. not really NFL starting quarterback caliber. Brandon Allen was in the like under nine range and is considered to be puny and potentially not draftable. Yeah. All right. So it here's is, my, I must say, and from my, my vast NFL experience, the football's pretty big. You know, I would not have been a quarterback kicker when I, I, I had some cleats that were size six and a half, I think were the smallest that I ordered. So I'm like stretching so much that I'm like worried that I'm injuring myself just because I want to goose my measurement. I think that I'm at about nine and a quarter or nine and three eighths inches. Your hands are smaller than my hands? I have small, wow. small, tiny man hands. How's your wingspan? I have a very short wingspan. So for those who don't know, and I'd expect that you do. I am about six foot five and a half inches. So I have vi- tall. So I have uh, <laughs> tall. <laughs> tall. So I have extremely small uh, limbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I have long legs and short arms and small hands. You know, I never noticed the shortness of your arms, but I can tell from sitting across the table here. I'm What's the your... JJ Reddick of podcasting. Yeah. With my What's your shoe size? My shoe size is 13. My shoe size doesn't exist. 12 and a half. You can't get you can't get twelve and a half. I feel like we've gotten a little bit off the subject, which is kind of the point of this subject. Not really, because if this were the combine, they would be asking us our shoe size, our wingspan. Also, my mom's a prostitute. <laughs> Thank you, Des Bryant. So, back to Brandon Allen. Um, his hand was measured at eight and a half inches at the, at the Senior Bowl. It was measured at eight and seven eighths inches at the combine, thanks to massage work. Basically, all oh, these all my hands are as big as Brandon <laughs> Allen's. Basically, all these muscles in my hand are very tight. The massage therapist told me so. He's working out these muscles so that my hand kind of opens up a little more when I stretch it. So, prospects have figured out it's not just training for speed or agility; <laughs> it's training to develop larger hands. <laughs> All across America, high school boys are yelling from the bathroom, I was just massaging my hands for the combine. (laughs) (laughs) So um, a guy named Tajay Sharp, who is not a quarterback, he's a wide receiver. um, But we got to measure every guy's hand because you never know Mm -hmm. when, you know, other players touch the ball. So at the Shrine game, his hands measured at seven and three quarter inches. At the Senior Bowl, his hands measured at eight inches. And at the combine, his hand measured at eight and three eighths inches. Whoa. Performance enhancing <laughs> drugs. That's all I have to say. Does he also lead the Fantastic Four? Is Sue Storm his wife? How's this working out for her? I read another quote um, by an NFL dude. He said, The way it's measured is a little odd. That's an eight inch hand, he said, then changing his style slightly, stretching it further. And that's a 10 inch hand. <laughs> Wow. If you can't extend your thumb or pinky, you end up with a small hand. But you might not have a small hand. It's a little bit useless of a measurement. As long as I don't start cutting the tendon <laughs> between the thumb and the index finger. I, th- I could see that happening. Put a little Band-Aid there, cut that tendon. You get a lot more <laughs> You get a lot more reach if you cut the tendon. But wait, the, the, fin- the, the closer of this quote is my favorite. He says, when you shake a guy's hand, you know whether he's got a big hand or not. 
Unless you have such a small hand, you can't even count. Like, if you have Jared Goff tiny hands, you probably can't even sense who has a big hand. See, this is why Dikembe Mutombo married a woman who was, like, five feet tall and everyone marveled. At that height, there is very little difference between five feet and five foot five, right? So I think Jared Goff, not only does he have small hands, he doesn't even have hand sense. You know, I've made this joke on, on, on Hang Up and Listen before, but I was actually in the uh the interview with jared goff that the i think it was the raiders interview mm. and the scout said to jared goff nothing which we are to perceive in this world equals the power of your intense fragility whose texture compels me with the colors of its countries rendering death and forever with each breathing i do not know what it is about you that closes and opens only something in me understands the voice of your eyes is deeper than all roses nobody not even the rain has such small hands Wow. That was a long setup, but uh, there were small hands in it. Um, So the question that you're asking now is, are those really um, the best free online ruler sites? Or (laughs) do you have additional recommendations? But also, does hand size actually correlate with success Success. in NFL quarterbacking? So a guy named Jonathan Bales, who writes for a fantasy football site, he did the work so that we don't have to. And he found that the NFL average for quarterback hand size is 9.6 inches. So, Mike Pesca, you are an above-average NFL quarterback. Does that mean nine inch? That's more than nine and a half inches. <laughs> so you're that's below. what 0.6 means. Pesca's yes. below average. You said nine and a half, right, Pesca? No, I'm almost ten. I'm, oh, almost I'm, ten. I'm sorry. I, I would say I would say nine and seven eighths, but I haven't massaged him. Now I'm massaging oh, right. him. So nine point eight seven five. So yeah. Mike is going to be massaging his hands. Mm-hmm. So he also points out that some of the top quote unquote short quarterbacks mm-hmm. like Drew Brees, 10 and a quarter inches, Russell Wilson, Whoa. 10 and a quarter inches, Brett Favre, 10.38 inches. Okay. But let's disprove this, Josh. Tell me who the Hall of Fame quarterbacks are who had sub nine and a half hands, nine, eight and three quarters even. So well, it's hard to get some... those statistics back as before. How like, far, when uh, did they start measuring measure. hand size at the combine? Well, before we get into that, some of the top small-handed quarterbacks are Michael Vick. Whose his... hands he calls historically <laughs> small. <laughs> um, RG3, nine and a half inches. Well, no wonder. Dante Culpepper, nine and a half inches. Um I feel like it's getting a little racial yeah, in here. Yeah, classic black guy, small hands. <laughs> you know, you um, know the old trope. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, All nine right, and uh, three eighths, and Tony Romo, eight point eight six inches. It's not like uh, Tony Romo ever dropped the ball yeah. on a very important field goal <laughs> in a playoff game. Sub nine, Tony Sub Romo, nine. Oh, God, <laughs> but Bale's claims that there is a much stronger correlation between hand size and both approximate value and completion rate than there is between height. And those stats. Hmm. And the, what the scouts say is it's not just ability to hold on to the ball and not fumble. It's the ability to spin the ball mm-hmm. with your giant man hands because you're, and be able to grip it in bad weather. Well, like the release, yeah, you're not releasing the ball as quickly as a short-fingered quarterback. <laughs> Vulgarian. Yeah. The ball's going to stay on your, on your longer hands. Longer. You know, there's part of the hands because I bite my nails, so there's like a little extra flesh between them. That's not doing anything for me. I don't. I don't think all it should be to the knuckle because past the knuckle doesn't really matter to your well, this is the outermost qu- lock. Why knuckle. doesn't it matter? That's the sensitivity is in your tips. Mm, the I sensitivity guess. is in your tips. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> all right. Um, well, that's what, the, that's what my hands. That's what these execs are saying: is that you know a big hand when you see it. It's just 
you know, like when when this comes up in the Supreme Court, that's what Potter that's Stewart what we're definition hear. of handsome. Yeah. Um, it's going to be about you know the fact that we haven't discovered the perfect way to measure a hand that we know a big hand when we see it, and perhaps the pinky to thumb just isn't the right way. But you know, we've got the tool that we have. This is the way that quarterback hands have been measured for years. And so, what are the outer limits? of quarterback hand size. That's what everybody wants to know in mm-hmm. this extremely nonlinear segment where we deliver information at completely random times. So at this chart I'm looking at on Quora, Ryan Mallett is listed as having the largest hands, which are 10 and three quarter inches. Veritable Mallet. Wow. Then Nick Foles is 10 point Six two five. See, well, I always knew I always knew that about Nick Foles because he would tell the story about when he was in kindergarten. He needed extra large construction paper to make his turkey. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but I wanted it to be true so badly. <laughs> Mark Sanchez then um, with ten and a half inches. So Chip Kelly kind of putting his money where his hand mouth is. He had both uh, Sanchez and Foles. So if he liked Fo- mm-hmm. Foles' hands, big hands so much, why did he trade him? Yeah. There's a website, otherleague.com, and this guy did a study of hands. Logan Thomas, who was on the Dolphins, 10 and 7 eighths. So just really and he the says best. five of the lower-rated quarterbacks have enormous hands. Cam, it says Cam Newton only has 9 and 7 eighths inch hands, just like Brock Osweiler. Mm-hmm. Cam, Brock, and I have the same size hands. So, so Russell similar. Wilson does have one of the – he's one of the few guys who's actually a legit starting quarterback in the league who's over 10 inches. So all the, all the really be- – the best quarterbacks in the NFL, Logan Thomas, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ryan Mallett, this guy B.J. Coleman, Austin Davis. It's just really big hands equals Hall of Fame I think is, is what, we've, uh, what we've proven here. Smallest hands is this dude. With the small hands. Tebow had big hands. John David Booty, eight and a half inches. And Ryan Tannehill is the only guy who uh, I've heard of who's really at the nine-inch mark. Alex Brink, 2008, drafted, eight and a half. Eight and a half, John David Booty and Alex Brink at the uh, the bottom All right, so I assume that you've all measured your hands at this point. Um, Jimmy Clausen, you'd think, would have small hands because his name is Jimmy. <laughs> And he does, nine inches. Small Jimmy (laughs) He does. It's great when things live up to expectations. All right. So we've solved a lot here. We've all measured our hands. Let's move on with our lives. And maybe next week we can measure our feet. I don't know. Let's do after ball. Should we do three cone drills? I I feel like we've probably done that. I feel like we've done three cone drills. Is your mother a prostitute? Cat or dog? Wasn't there a cat or dog? The, the dude that posted uh, on Twitter the list you, of questions he was asked. He said, uh, another one was, if you could kill someone and get away with it, <laughs> would you do it? The answer is obviously yes. No, the answer is obviously no, but the real answer that you don't say out loud is yes. Well, as an NFL prospect. Linebacker it? or defensive <laughs> lineman, yes. Offensive lineman, running back, no. Offensive lineman because they have to be protective. Running back because they just might. Right. All right, so Mike, Mike, <laughs> exactly. Mike, what is your would you kill a guy if no one would find out about it? Yeah, I've been looking at some statistics, Josh, statistics that a guy like you just might find interesting. The other day, a feller by the name of Anthony Davis. A guy with nine and three-eighth inch hands. <laughs> well, probably much bigger hands than that and a unibrow to match. Put up some uh, amazing statistics, as he does. Josh, do you believe in the PER statistic, the P-E-R? Are you a believer in that? 
I feel like I don't really know what it account what what's going into it, so mm-hmm. I I feel ill informed, and it doesn't take into account defense. And I think it like overvalues rebound. I don't know. I don't okay. know to answer your question. Where do you stand with win shares? I feel ill and as equally ill informed about win shares, but okay. I don't want to let that stop you. All right, it's your well, journey. Well, the PER statistic is one that greatly favors Anthony Davis. A couple years ago, he was on pace to beat Wilt Chamberlain in per. It favors the tall man. Here's the top ranking. Wilt, Michael, Kareem, Shaq, George Mikan, Bob Pettit, and then Anthony Davis above David Robinson and noted Steph Curry skeptic Oscar Robertson. So I don't think he's that good. But if you go by win shares through the first four years of their career, you have Anthony Davis. Right now, he's sitting at 39. They've still got, what do what they got, 20 games left? So he's going to be somewhere in the top 30 for sure, somewhere around 35. And I looked at every player through four years of his career who is – in any way arguably better than Anthony Davis in, you can't do it in per, not really, but also in win shares. Anthony Davis is the most screwed over player in the history of the NBA in terms of putting a team around him. Because we all know that Michael Jordan, you know, had losing teams his first three years, but he made the playoffs every year, went to the second round one, and then in his fourth year, he had a 50-win season. And there are other players like Sean Marion, his son teams weren't as good. Sean Marion, they love first four years in terms of win share. But, and then you also have, of course, Kareem was, is the number one player in win shares his first four years, and Magic is doing well in win shares, and of course, he wins an NBA title in his first four years, and Duncan and Robinson are there, and they do well from the get-go. But even guys who we don't think of as, you know, lighting the world on fire or winning championships had more winning seasons, played in more playoff games than Anthony Davis. If you look at Anthony Davis's teammates, sure, a lot of injuries on the Pelicans, but I would just say they have done less to build a team around a great player in New Orleans than any other team has ever done with any other great player. Your thoughts, Pelican fan? <laughs> That's a bold statement. I like that uh, that take. That's a good take. 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 Yeah, I think that it's actually not an issue with effort. I think they've spent a lot of money and made a lot of trades and acquisitions to try to get guys around them. It's just that they've been the wrong moves, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of duplication of talent. Like they've got Tyreek Evans and they've got Eric Gordon and they've got Drew Holiday. They've got like all these guys on the – and a, thir- and a bunch and of those guys also, have injuries, yeah. And, yeah, all three of those guys have been extremely injured the last few years at various points. And Ryan Anderson is a good player. He scores a lot, but he cannot play defense. And so there are issues there. It's just like a weird ro- – they did a very weird job of roster construction. And I think the thing that critics of the Pelicans don't understand is the realities of trying to build a franchise in that market are – the owner, Tom Benson, like puts a lot of pressure on the GM to put to put together a winning team. And when there's immediate pressure to put together a winning team, that almost never works. And it's almost never a good long-term strategy. But there are rational reasons to do it because it's just not a basketball market. And fans do not support a team that doesn't win. And so there are just these like weird externalities. Not even weird. There are understandable externalities with that franchise that prevents it. Like you could never do the process in New Orleans because the team would just move or like nobody would go watch it or support it. Um, And so I have some sympathy. I think they've had really bad injury luck. I think the moves have actually been bad. So I think it's like a confluence of all of those factors. And Anthony Davis is awesome. All right. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you for sharing your afterball with me. Stefan, what is your would you kill a guy if uh, nobody would uh, ever find out about it? Yes or no? Well, Steph Curry's three to beat Oklahoma City was a lot of things. But you know what it wasn't? It wasn't historic. And that distinction goes to one and only one three-point shot. The first one, it was not made by Ronnie Carr of Western Carolina, who hit the first NCAA three in 1980, or by Chris Ford, who made the first NBA three for the Celtics in 1979, or by Indiana Pacers guard Jerry Harkness, whose 92-foot heave beat the Dallas Chaparrals. Chaparrals, chaparrals, it's, 119 to 118 it's a wind. in 1967. It's a, it's a type of wind, right? Yeah. Do you think that yeah. their opponents uh, razzed them as the crapperals? That's a very easy one. Probably. Or at least some 10-year-old boy did. No, in, it's in a Utah. shrub. It's a heartland plant. It's a shrub? A chaparral's a shrubland or heartland plant. The Dallas chaparrals. 119 to 118 in 1967. That was when the ABA debuted the three, or by whoever made the first three in 1961 in Abe Saperstein's short-lived American Basketball League. So who made the historic three? I don't know. But I do know that it was a player for either the Columbia Lions or the Fordham Rams who played a game on February 7th, 1945 with some experimental rules. There was a 12-foot lane, twice as wide as at the time, a choice of a regular one-point foul shot or a two-point foul shot, which would be taken from a line 21 feet from the basket, which extended in a semicircle to the corners and beyond which a field goal was worth three points. The game was the brainchild of University of Oregon head coach Howard Hobson. Hobson was on the college rules committee. He was an analytics pioneer, as described in Rise and Fire, Sean Fury's new book about the history of the jump shot. Hobson in 1949 published a book called Scientific Basketball that analyzed 460 college games, quote, in which various performances were recorded. Hobson had done grad work at Columbia, and he teamed with an alum named Julian Rice to test one of his ideas. Since longer shots were harder to make, his data showed that players made 18% of shots beyond 21 feet. Those shots should be worth more. The game sounds like it was pretty great. Fans were asked to keep track of shots. They were surveyed at halftime for their opinion. And even though they were no doubt encouraged to chuck it up, unlike ABA and then NBA players at the dawn of their threes, the Columbia and Fordham players let their two handed set shots fly. According to the New York Times, the next morning players were so eager to heave it that they were seen backing up to take pop shots from the bonus distance, often leading to whistleblowing because of carrying the ball. The Columbia Spectator reported that both teams outperformed Hobson's average. The Lions bagged 11 of 26 threes, while Fordham was a Curry-esque 9 of 18 beyond the arc. So who were the Currys and Corvers of 1945? The first three-maker was not identified by the Times or the Spectator, and I couldn't find a write-up in the Fordham Ram archives online, but we do know that nine different players splashed a three. Columbia guard John Profant made four for 22 points, or as the spectator wrote, 16 regular and six bonus points. Cahill of Fordham, first name unknown, also sank four bonus babies. Norm Skinner of Columbia led all scorers with 23 regular tallies and 26 under the new system. Palumbo, Pac, Garcia of Columbia, Sagulich, O'Rourke, and Weisenecker of Fordham also bagged threes. So what did everyone think of the experiment? Steve Megargree tracked down an 81-year-old Norm Skinner for a story for Rivals.com in 2007. I was the highest scorer because the 21-foot line was just my normal set shot, Skinner said. I wasn't 
doing anything differently. I wasn't paying any attention to the three-point line. In the halftime poll at Morningside Heights Gym, 148 fans liked the three-pointer, 105 didn't. The two-point foul shot and the wider lane also got the thumbs up from the fans. The coaches, officials, and media, though, did not like the changes one bit. The experts' impression was that subordinating the layup shot by awarding an extra point for a long basket would minimize the value of team play, Lewis Efrat wrote in the Times. At this point, it seems that the potential plan will be permitted to die a natural death, there is more than enough confusion in basketball without adding to it by modifying the present rules. By all means, let's protect the layup. Columbia won 73 to 58. Both the Times and the Spectator noted that the final score would have been 59-44 under conventional scoring. Hobson's experiment was not repeated, but he did lobby for the three for decades. In 1978, he told NBA Commissioner Larry O'Brien to add the three to, quote, draw the defense out, decrease the use of the zone, relieve congestion near the basket, add a spectacular play for the fans, and give the team behind a better chance to catch up. Not without reason is Howard Hobson in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Josh, what's your, would you kill someone if no one found out about it? Thanks, Stefan. So an afterball can do a lot of things. You can talk about statistics. You can illuminate a, a lost part of sports history. Mm-hmm. You can really elevate the human spirit. And today, I'd like to do uh, something very special with this afterball. I want to tell you about the future. I want to give you an early warning about a future star in the world of sport. I follow professional tennis because you guys uh, don't. don't. So you don't have to. And I feel like we're just a couple months away, maybe six months, maybe three, maybe nine, maybe 14, from uh, Taylor Fritz becoming a huge star, the biggest uh, men's tennis star in uh, American tennis since your Sampras's, since your Agassiz. Um, there's been a lot of kind of consternation about the fact that no American man has won a Grand Slam since Andy Roddick in 2003. And Roddick only won one. Come on, Andy Roddick. Um, But the U.S. now does have five of the top 10 players in the world rankings um, who are aged 18 and younger in reverse order of ranking. They're uh, Michael Moe, Stefan Kozlov, Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafoe, and Taylor Fritz. Um, There are now also three American men 23 and under in the top 100, Jack Sock, Dennis Kudla, and Taylor Fritz. That's for the first time in 11 years. And uh, Taylor Fritz, he's ranked 81 now. He is the youngest American in the top 100, according to my man Parsa on Twitter. Love Parsa. Um, He's the first, uh, he's the youngest American in the top 100 since Donald Young in 2007. Uh, Taylor Fritz is the second highest ranked player in the world who's not yet 19. He's the fourth highest uh, ranked player who's not yet 20. He's the fifth highest ranked player who's not yet 21. He is uh, the fifth highest ranked player who's not yet 22. He's the seventh highest ranked player who's not yet 23. The guy is 18. And uh, what I think that shows you is that old guys are dominating tennis now. A guy named Miguel Cicinia on Twitter found that the average age um, in 2000 of a top 100 player was 25 years old. There are only seven players 30 and older in the top 100. Um, In February of this year, the average age has increased by three years up to 28. And there are 38 players 30 and older in the top 100. 
Again, Taylor Fritz is 18. He's ranked 81st in the world. He just made a final of a like tour-level tournament, lost to Kane Ishikori in Memphis. He is the youngest American to make a final of an ATP tournament in, I think, 30 years. Um, he won two challenger-level tournaments before he turned 18. Um, and among the players who have done that, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Juan Martin Del Potro, Tomas Burdich, Bernard Tomic, and Richard Gasquet. So that's not just like he's the first American to do something since Donald Young, which is like not really that all, all that impressive. He's like the first guy in the world, or he's among guys in the world who've won challenger-level titles, including Nadal and Djokovic. And just from a qualitative point of view, he can actually hit a fucking backhand as mm-hmm. opposed to every other American tennis player. Even Jack Sock, who's great and I think who could win a Grand Slam one day. He's like all forehand and serve. Steve Johnson, all forehand and serve. John Isner, all forehand and serve. That has been like the big criticism of American men's tennis is that none of these guys play in the kind of elegant way that you see every other top player from every country play, like with an all-court game. This guy can has a huge serve. He's six foot four. He's got a great forehand, but he can actually like play other shots. Like if you hit the ball to the left side of the court, he doesn't just stop playing and give up. Both of his parents were professional tennis players. He's kind of a handsome dude. So I'm just giving you guys an early warning. This guy's going to be a guy. Watch out for this guy. I got two questions. Yes. One. Taylor Harry Fritz. What a name. How big are his hands? <laughs> They're hopefully pesticized, not Brandon Allen size. And two. What about oh. Nigerian Sepp Blatter? I did a thing on Slate about it. You can read it. Slate.com. It kind of petered out. Oh. Yeah. I, I meant to ask Bob Lee about it. Did you know, Bob, that Sepp Blatter has fallen to such unfathomable lows? Taylor Harry Fritz. Could make some noise at the slams. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.